Well, good evening, and it's a privilege to bring to you again from Ephesians chapter 1 something more about prayer. Very simple, I think, this morning, just reminding us how vital prayer is. And we're very slow to learn that, aren't we, in practice? But now we need to move on and ask, what should we be praying for? And I'm going to say this this evening, what's the most important thing to pray for? At least, what is it that Paul immediately prays for as he communicates with these Ephesians? I remind you that Paul is in prison in Rome. He's writing to this church, which he hasn't seen for four or five years. <clears throat> He's obviously not free to visit them. Surely he would prefer to do that and speak with them face to face. But he's very concerned about them. So what does he pray for them? What does Paul believe, having heard about them, is their greatest need? Let's think of Maidenbauer Baptist Church. What's your great need? What do you need from God that you're going to pray for so that you can glorify him in this church? Let me suggest a few things. Do we need God to do a new thing? Do we need a fresh Holy Spirit baptism of power? Well, it's not what Paul is praying for them. Interestingly enough, no doubt there's some truth, but the fact is they already have the Holy Spirit of power. And he's going to pray for them specifically, we'll look at this next time, in verse 19, I want you to know the immeasurably great power that's at work in you who believe. So that's not it here. Is it a new thing for them to do? You know, like, you know, your problem as a church, Ephesians, you haven't fully surrendered yourself to the Lord and dedicated yourself to his service. I mean, that's an emphasis of many, isn't it? Well, there's some truth in it. Surely we know we're not what we ought to be, but the fact is, they're already saints. They already belong to the Lord. They're already consecrated to him. He calls them that in verse uh, well, 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. <clears throat> and he goes on to say that you've been purchased by the blood of Christ. You already belong lock, stock and barrel to Christ. And if you don't, then you're not his, are you? So that's not what he prays for either. <clears throat> well, is it a new thing for this church to do? Is that your problem? There's some activity you're not doing. You know how it goes, don't you? Uh, we need an evangelistic program now that we've not had before. Or we need a crusade. For some, it's the problem is, you know, you're singing without any accompaniment now. 
And just singing those old hymns, although you do try to modernise them, don't you? But uh, we need to totally revamp the music. Then we're going to know the blessing from God. For others, it's we've got to have cell groups or discipleship groups. In one sense, I'm not really saying we shouldn't give attention to such things, including singing. But that isn't what Paul prays for them. The greatest need, when all has been said and done, is one thing. It's knowledge. That's what he prays for here. Knowledge. Sadly, there's an aversion to that amongst many who call themselves Christians. Look at verse 17. He says, I'm praying, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I want you to know God. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. What is the hope to which he's called you? And then you can add those words in again. Um, what, uh, uh, rather, that you know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then you can say it the third time. And that you may know what is the immeasurable power. It's knowledge, 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 knowledge. Generally and specifically. Let's reference one other verse, Colossians chapter 1. He writes to the Colossian church, who, in a sense, there were people there who prided themselves in knowledge. He prays for them as well. Listen to his words. Colossians 1 and verse 9. And so from the day we heard, just the same, isn't it? We heard about you. We heard how you're getting on. We're so thankful to God for you. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. What, Paul? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. We could go to other passages, but surely one is enough, isn't it? A two or three are certainly enough witnesses to, to show that this is absolutely vital. <clears throat> there are many times when Paul, as he's writing to Christians to exhort them, to encourage them, he says something like this, and we know. He says, because we know, therefore... We can live the Christian lives that we ought to do. Think of Romans 8.28. We quote that one, if you know it well, because of the wonderful truth that all things work together for good to those who love God. But it starts with, for we know. Well, of course, if you don't know, then you've got problems, according to the word of God. We must know in order that we can suck the the benefit, the blessing from the truths that are written. We tend, I believe, when we pray, to pray for our change of circumstances. If we're in trouble, 
we want the trouble removed. If we're persecuted, we want the persecution removed. That's not the way persecuted people pray, by the way. If we're sick, we want the sickness removed. But we don't often pray about the change of attitude in those circumstances. All those things I've mentioned, even the unbeliever faces. The difference for us is not that our lives are now on cloud nine. We never have any problem. But it's the way we face the different aspects of our life. We do it with, what do we hear this morning? Thanksgiving, don't we? Instead of complaint. So joy, instead of being miserable. Contentment, instead of being dissatisfied. Trust, instead of being unbelieving. And what enables us to have those attitudes of thankfulness and joy and contentment and trust? It's knowledge, isn't it? So what a fundamental thing knowledge is. And that's why Paul prays for that generally and specifically for the Ephesian Christians. So a number of things to bring to you from verses 17 and the beginning of verse 18. First is this, pray for yourself, pray for others that we might delight in the knowledge of God. Now there are a couple of questions, I might even call them difficulties. He wants God, in verse 17, to give them the spirit of wisdom. Now if you've got the King James or the New King James, I believe it's in a small s. If you've got the NIV or the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, it's a big S, meaning that they believe the reference is to the Holy Spirit. I don't think we need to make much of it because in the end it comes down to the same thing, because the Holy Spirit works in our spirits. But the reality is, only the Holy Spirit can give this wisdom and revelation which is spoken of, right? He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Yes, that's in our spirits, but it's by the Holy Spirit. So he's praying that that spirit who already indwells you may work these things in you. We may sort of paraphrase it this way. May God, who gave his spirit, who is wise, and who reveals the truth to his people, may he so work that we might have spiritual wisdom and knowledge so that we can grow as Christians. It's absolutely fundamental. It shows our helplessness. 
we're not able to get this knowledge of God by our own efforts. We are absolutely dependent from the beginning, the middle, and to the end upon the work of God, the Holy Spirit. I want to say here that I've struggled to find the clear difference between wisdom and revelation. I mean, we know what the words mean, but when it comes down to details, what does he mean by the spirit of wisdom and of revelation? They seem to be almost identical because clearly what the Holy Spirit reveals is wisdom. I'm going to separate them. What I'm going to say is true. Uh, I trust that it's what is revealed here. First of all, I need, you need more wisdom. That's knowledge which is wisdom, because by definition, if it's knowledge God has given, it's the wisest thing that you can ever uh, read and know. Back in verse 8, he says that God has lavished upon us his grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So when we've learned the will of God, it's mysterious in the sense we couldn't know it unless uh, it was spoken, then here we have wisdom and insight. These are then the eternal purposes of God as he's listed them in verses 3 to 14. I need that. I need to know those things. I need to read verses 3 to 14 and have an understanding of the words and of the truth. Now, I want to emphasize that we can only know that by the working of the Holy Spirit. It's he who gave the word in the first place. You see, so many uh, men in history have used their own minds. They felt that their own mind is sufficient to understand. They investigate. Very sincere people. Um, they look at the world. They look at the history of thought. And they try and work out things for themselves. But that's foolishness is to say that I can make it myself. I can understand everything myself, although I'm just a person of yesterday, aren't I? But we've got to start with God, which is where the Bible starts. Who is he? What did he make? Why did he make it? And we only find that in the scriptures. The beginning of wisdom or knowledge is the fear of God. That is, to begin with God and to see everything related to him. Today, of course, really every day, 
There are so many problems in this world. I don't even need to begin to describe them to you. You know them. Uh, they're emblazoned before you all the time. Whoever considers that these problems are there, whether they be war, sickness, immorality, because of sin. Because it's God who made us in his image. And we're inheriting problems, judgments, wrath of God because we've turned away from him. That's wisdom, isn't it? But it's not the wisdom of this world. So we need to have more and more of that wisdom, of that knowledge that's here in the scriptures. That's the way I'm going to interpret the spirit of wisdom. It begins with the scriptures. Absolutely fundamental that we know the scriptures from beginning to end. Otherwise, how can you understand anything? But it also talks, and secondly, about the spirit of revelation. This isn't some additional revelation to the scripture, but it's our ability to understand the scripture and how it applies to me, to us. The Bible describes us as in darkness by nature. I don't know if you've ever really been in the dark. There's lights everywhere, even at night, here in certainly around this area of the country. Uh, but you go to a place in North Kenya, for example, where uh, it's pitch black and you, you can't even see a tree. And I remember one time being lost in a, in a scrub in the car, even trying to look for the, the places where the car had been. I got completely and utterly lost, totally dark. That is what we're like by nature in terms of the truth of God's wisdom. I have no spiritual ability to understand. Yes, I can read words, but what do they mean? And especially, how do they apply to me? And so, <clears throat> Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If I don't have a lamp, I'm in darkness. When you get up at night, if you've got no special lights on, you need a torch, don't you, to, to see the way. And the word of God is like that as we walk in this world. And so <clears throat> when Paul relates his commission to preach to the Gentiles, he does it in chapter 60, 26 of Acts, he says, I've been sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. <clears throat> Let me give you an example. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, there are these words. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins. Tell me what that means. Tell me what that has to do with you. Okay. Uh, 
I can tell you that redemption means to purchase, to buy out of slavery, or it might be uh, bringing out of slavery by a mighty hand overcoming your enemies, as uh, God did for the Israelites out of Egypt. So we can examine the meaning of the word redemption, can't we? And we can come with a very uh, clear meaning. Oh, it's the forgiveness of our sins. Our trespass, if we can work out what a trespass is, it's overstepping the mark, going outside the prescribed path. And forgiveness means that, uh, well, you know what forgiveness means, don't you? It's, it's an obvious word. You don't hold it against somebody anymore. And you can look at the word blood. You can explain all those things. Then you can walk away. I've understood the Bible, but you haven't understood it. What does it mean to you? Do you understand that it's talking about you? That it's talking about your trespasses? You have trespassed. That you need forgiveness. And that it's only to be done through the redemption that's in Christ by his blood. What does that actually mean for you? That's what we're talking about, you see. Anybody, atheist, Hindu, can read the Bible and can look at words and understand words, but they simply walk away. It makes no difference whatsoever, except they might exclaim, it's a lovely book, isn't it? And it's got some nice teaching in it and... But to really grasp what it's saying as it impacts you, that needs revelation by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we must pray for. As we read the scripture and as you hear in this church the word of God preached, you can have the most... Clear, wonderful preacher, but without the Holy Spirit, nothing will be accomplished. That's what Paul is praying for here. And specifically then, in the context, Paul wants us to understand the full implications of election. Predestination, right here for those of you who weren't here this morning, in verses 3 to 14, of redemption, as we've said, as giving us wisdom and insight, giving us inheritance, sealing us with the Spirit. He wants us to grasp those things fully. It's absolutely essential for our Christian living. Please, don't say, ah, that's doctrine, I don't need that. You cannot live a godly, mature Christian life without doctrine. In fact, that's the way Ephesians is structured. The first three chapters are doctrine. And then in chapter 4 he says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner 
worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What calling have we been called to? Chapters 1 to 3. Now walk accordingly. But if you don't know your calling, how can you walk worthily of it? But it's a very specific knowledge, isn't it? It's in the knowledge of him, which is the knowledge of God. We may have a problem with the word knowledge and just think of exam knowledge, being able to repeat things that we've learned or winning a quiz sort of knowledge, you know, the sort of Bible drill that children have sometimes. It has its place, no doubt. But even demons have that kind of knowledge, don't they? God is one, James says. Even the demons, it says, believe. They know it for sure. But they tremble as a result. They don't know the real implication of it for themselves. This is not just knowledge of facts, of doctrines. And maybe I can say here, at least this is from Kenya background, where in the church there in Nairobi, there are many, many young adults. The danger when we are younger is that we're very excited about doctrine. Please be excited about doctrine. Please. But doctrine is not there to be argued over, is it, and debated. Doctrine is there to be believed and to fundamentally transform our lives so that we live godly lives. So this is knowledge of God as a person. Again, this is a big subject. Paul wants the Christians, he wants us to have a deepening personal relationship with God based upon how he has revealed himself. It's the difference between being taught, as we do to young children, that uh, don't touch the fire because it will burn you, and the child actually touching the fire and getting burned and having that sort of experiential knowledge. This is the Christian life where God is really at the centre of life. If you like, God now is the very atmosphere we breathe. We see everything in our lives, not just the so-called spiritual, but everything in relationship to our God and our Father. Even our eating and our drinking. You know what the Bible says? Whether you eat or drink, something so ordinary, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It means we recognise that God is present. He wants us to, to please him, to glorify him in the most ordinary, everyday activities, like when you go on holiday, maybe. <laughs> so, knowledge. 
It's general in the sense it's a knowledge of God. But then it's also a specific knowledge. We won't look into this this evening. But in verses 18 and 19, he focuses upon three things. It's not knowledge like here are seven steps to overcoming temptation, that sort of knowledge that people seek to tell us about. But it's knowledge about the hope to which God has called us. It's knowledge that we are God's inheritance. And it's knowledge about God's power which is at work in us. We'll look at those, as I say, God willing, next time. Those are the three very specific areas. It's interesting, isn't it? What practical things they are. When we don't know them and know them deeply, then, oh, how we suffer as Christians. May I just take this evening this one example? If you don't have a deepening knowledge of the hope to which you've been called, how are you going to cope when you lose your job, when you get older, when diseases come, when you know your life is ending? Ah, you know the hope to which you've been called. That will keep you, won't it? To the end, enjoy and entrust in the Lord. Do you, do you see how vital, my brethren, this knowledge is? Please, don't despise knowledge. Don't despise reading. Uh, people who uh, can explain this. Uh, <clears throat> this is the only way we're going to live mature Christian lives. We've got to see our lives as part of an eternal plan of God. God chose us before the foundation of the world. He called us. He called us to Christ. He put his spirit within us to give us power. He sees us as his inheritance, we are so precious to him. And then he's preparing us for eternal glory. Look at everything in that perspective. And then you'll live the life that God intends for you. As you start, keep reading the Bible. See how often... This knowledge, this kind of knowledge, is brought to you. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul emphasizes a sufferings, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. So we're always of good courage. Paul, how on earth? Can you have courage? In your situation, you're telling us you, you die every day. 
that you're treated as a scum of the world. Look at what he says. We know. Oh, I see. You're able to be of good courage in your difficulties because you know. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Verse 10. Doesn't actually use the word no, but it's continuing. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, verse 11. You keep reading the Bible, you'll find this comes over and over again. But the last thing I want to bring to you is that you can have confidence that when you pray, like Paul is praying here, God will certainly grant your request. That's always encouraging, isn't it? It's so vital that we know who God is to whom we pray. So consider how God, I'm sorry, how Paul addresses God here in verse 17. He multiplies his words to give us assurance. Again, as you read the prayers of the Bible, note how God is addressed. So often is specifically related to the prayers that are being offered. So as we pray for something, we think of God and his character and how that relates to what we want to pray for. So he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I'm praying to, who I want uh, to give you this knowledge. That's the same sort of language that Jesus used after his resurrection. He called uh, God his God. Of course, he called God his Father. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son. In the Old Testament, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now, in a very special way, our God is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's the God of our salvation. He's the God who gave his Son with the express purpose of giving us this full salvation which is revealed here in the first part of Ephesians. He's the God who gave his son to become incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary. He's the one who gave his son to those three years of ministry. He's the God who did not spare his son but gave him up to the death upon the cross. He's the God who raised him from the dead. He's the God who therefore has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Now if that's the God he prays to, is there any possibility that when we pray according to his will, 
that salvation will not be accomplished in us. If he gave the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a full description of him. If he gave him for us, using the, the um, language of Romans 8, how shall he not give us all things freely in him? You can be sure, if this is the will of God for you to have knowledge, let's pray for it. Let's pray for one another that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ will grant this to us, that knowing we might live to his glory. Whatever our circumstances are, And then he calls him the father of glory. I mean, why does he do that? Does Paul just like to multiply words? Well, yes, sometimes we think he does. But he does it for purpose. When you multiply words truly, you are emphasizing, aren't you? So he wants you to know who God is as you ask for this great blessing of knowledge. He's infinitely glorious. That means God is perfect in every aspect of his being. There's no darkness in him at all. He doesn't lack power. He doesn't lack wisdom. He doesn't lack goodness. He doesn't lack love. So there's nothing that's going to hinder him from granting this request. As the father of glory, he's the source of all glory. It's in himself, and he's the source, and he gives it to us. Indeed, Jesus prays in John 17 that uh, we might be glorified with the glory that he has. And so, once again, here's the absolute certainty. There's, there's no lack in God. There's no, uh, nothing to hinder him. <coughs> If we're praying to the Father of glory and the Father of glory, then we can be absolutely sure. So let me make a couple of applications as we conclude. As important and vital, essential as the scriptures are, they're not sufficient. Hear me carefully, please. <laughs> they're not sufficient in themselves to lead us to God. That is why God has appointed, first of all, the Holy Spirit to work, to give wisdom and revelation, and he's appointed specifically preachers who he delights to use to bring this blessing of wisdom and of revelation. When Jesus fed the 5,000, this is in John chapter 6, and he said, I'm the bread that uh, has come down from heaven. People got very offended. They said, but we know who you are. How can you say you come from heaven? We know who your mom and dad are. Your brothers and sisters are with us here. Why are you claiming such big things? And Jesus then goes on to say that those who come to me, who believe in me, are those who have been taught by the Father. John 6, 45. Every one of us 
the Spirit has taught us. The word is there. We were not capable ourselves. But we've been illuminated. Our hearts have been opened. Whatever language you want to use. And uh, we know because God himself has taught us. You just think of the multitudes who heard the Prince of Preachers. I'm not talking about Spurgeon. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But they turned away from him, didn't they, in John 6? Hearing Christ speak was not enough to bring them to faith. They saw signs, signs that many people today would love to see and say, if only we see them, we'll believe. But people didn't believe. Jesus said if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you saw, they would believe, but you didn't believe. So again, the greatest need is for the Spirit to work this knowledge. And then secondly, every time we deal with the Scriptures, personally, and when we come to, to worship, we must pray. We must know that God must open our eyes. Psalm, again, 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. God's word doesn't enter our hearts automatically. Just because you're here doesn't mean that you will understand. There's a need that we pray. There's a need that we read and we meditate. We think about the word, we ask the Lord to give us that understanding. You think now, here we've got the six blessings that he's revealed in verses 3 to 14. When have you prayed... Or when have you ever heard somebody pray for greater knowledge from God to understand those blessings? Indeed, when have you heard people pray, God, Holy Spirit, please grant knowledge to your people? We pray for persecuted Christians, as we should. When have we ever prayed, Lord, please give them knowledge. As they face perhaps death, please make them strong in that hope that they have in Christ. Help them to know that uh, your power is at work in them. They can stand strong. Isn't that what they need more than anything? That they and we might be faithful unto death, until our dying day, or until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. May the Lord help us to think about what we should pray for and to begin to pray more and more according to the word of God. Let us pray. Forgive us, Lord, that we have your word. We love it, but we're so slow to put it into practice. Please give us understanding of it.
Lord, we, I trust, have been helped to see that really the most important thing we need is knowledge. Knowledge of your will, knowledge of your truth, that we might live according to it and thus be faithful until the very end. So, Lord, use this word in our lives for your glory and our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.